You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
was not the key to the emergence of modernity. And certainly, once the colonization process begins, the shift to modernity is in struggle against European influence, not as a result of it. So it is, in fact, quite the opposite. It is not European influence bringing in modernity, but the reverse is the case. The roots of democracy in India, for example, are much older than the Enlightenment process in Europe. Amartya Sen, for example, argues he takes it back to the ancient period. Quite contrary to the Western view that Nubila referred to, uh, that the non-Western societies are unsuited or uh, incapable of imbibing democratic values, he argues quite the opposite. He says that a dialogical tradition goes back in India to the ancient period. And he says on the basis, he is also far from being an economist, a scholar of Sanskrit, he says on the basis of comparing various classical languages, such as Greek, Latin, Sanskrit, Hebrew, etc., he argues that in Sanskrit, in the ancient scripts, you find a huge amount of dialogical tradition, debate. The, the norm is to debate, Turk is the word used. If somebody argues there is God, or God resides in this form, the other one says no, it is in this form, and the third person says it doesn't, God doesn't exist at all. So this is an old tradition. Historically, the subcontinent, of which India is a very large part, learned to live with, over the centuries, an amazing amount of difference. A difference which you cannot realize unless you actually visited India. Hmm? Hundreds of languages, every conceivable religion. Islam comes to India while the prophet is still alive. It's not a sort of medieval invasion into India. Hmm? Uh, Christianity comes to India again, pretty much uh, at the very beginning. And whole number of other religions I'm not even mentioning have, have lived there over a long period of time. The heart of democracy, argues Sen, is this process of dialogue, acceptance, and if, if not, the celebration of difference. On this question of alternate routes to modernity, the German historian Dietmar Rothermann did a fascinating comparison. He compared two emperors of the 16th century who ruled for roughly 40 years at the same time, Akbar in India and Philip II in Spain. What does Akbar do? He talks of reason, 16th century, rationality, tolerance, universal religion, not to be divided on the basis of religious uh, uh, belief, separation of religion from state, freedom of speech. He in fact organizes institutionalized debate in his court so that people from multiple viewpoints and multiple religions should actually come and debate. And he argues for non-violence, drawing on the Chisti Sufi tradition. Now this is way before, or certainly not influenced by the uh, Enlightenment. And what is Philip II doing at the same time? The Spanish inquests. So he makes this comparison precisely to make, to argue that there are indeed alternate routes. 
The Indian national movement, a hundred year old struggle from the middle of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century, consciously draws on this ancient medieval tradition. Any major figure from Jawaharlal Nehru to Gandhi you will find is constantly drawing from Buddha, from Akbar in their statements hmm? and drawing from this uh, tradition of non-violent nation-making based on the ethic of reconciliation and celebrating difference. So the Indian nation-state is imagined, in its imagination, is the process of non-violence, consensual celebration of difference. So therefore, the democracy that this kind of nation-making brings has a quality which is somewhat different from another variation of nation-making that I shall discuss in a moment. Just as the emergence of democracy does not have a fixed European path, similarly, the threats to democracy also do not have a European model. In India today, we are witnessing the creeping up of fascism while the elite in India, including that from the left, are discussing the fine distinctions between fascism in Italy and fascism in Germany and how what is happening in India is not quite the same, etc., etc. Because of this compulsion to necessarily find identical models with the best. So you really miss the good uh, for the miss the for the tree. That's right. Forest for the tree, that's right. The manner in which nationalism and nations making emerged in various parts of Europe was basically one language, one religion, the French Revolution flattened out France. It, France was a multilingual country. So you emerge as Catholic France, push the Protestants to one little province in Britain. Catholic France, Protestant England, Protestant Germany, etc. etc. So it's very, very monolithic, uh, narrowly defined, plus, as this Mughala discussed yesterday, nations making in Europe happened simultaneously with the subjugation of large parts of other peoples. So on the one hand, you are emerging as a nation state, and each nation state in Europe as it emerges also acquires colonies. So as nation states emerge with the rise of capitalism, the rise of capitalism also simultaneously sees the rise of colonialism. The two processes, as we know, are deeply interlinked. One does not happen without the other. So therefore, in this nationalism, it is what is called an aggrandizing nationalism. A monolithic, narrow, aggrandizing nationalism is the possibility, in fact, some have argued, the apogee of uh, uh, fascism is an aggrandizing nationalism. So in this nationalism are the possibilities of uh, fascism, unless they are struggled against, as they are in many parts of Europe, and as they are not in many parts of Europe, who draw from this, ending up in its logical conclusion of what happened in Germany and Italy. As contrasted to this, the anti-imperialist nationalism that we witness in many parts of the world, certainly in India. This nationalism is anti-imperialist by definition. It is not going to subjugate anybody else. It celebrates diversity. The more the better. 
It is not trying to flatten out one language, one religion, this, that, and the other. It's secular, and most importantly, it's pro-people. The people constitute the nation. The nation is not above the people, as happens in a fascist imagination. So this is part of the nation-making process. The fact that the Indian National Movement was a mass movement, one of the biggest mass movements in world history, where millions participated, and that it was a long, prolonged, 100-year-old movement, meant that these ideas went deep down into the minds of the people. And that is one reason why democracy, despite almost all predictions from the West after, in, after independence, that how can democracy survive in a country like this? As the British said, India is, cannot be a nation. It's a, it's a geographical expression. You know? It's South Asia, as we are now described, in which all kinds of people live together. It cannot be a democracy. It cannot be. But quite contrary to that, it has survived as a democracy for 70 years for this reason. This nationalism, yes, I think. This nationalism was the root to democracy and modern, modernity, as opposed to the alternate nationalism, which was which had the potential of uh, abrogating democracy. So when a critique of nationalism is made, as it is made primarily again, quite understandably, in the West, the whole postmodernist uh, language of you know, the nation states being the master narrative, which are destroying all the, the little, little differences. Now, this is emerges out of a vision of nationalism, which is not our nationalism at all. In fact, nation states and nationalism are critical for the survival of Asian societies or uh, of many parts of the world, as, in fact, nationalism of the other kind are dangerous for other parts of the world. One must dif uh, differentiate between the two. I'll take just two, three, two minutes more to finish. Hmm? The threats to democracy in India and other former colonies are different from that of West Europe. We are operating on two histo different historical epochs. Hmm? The threat to democracy in the late capitalist, late entrance to capitalism, hmm? those who come in 200 years after the Industrial Revolution, is how do you raise the surplus for investment? On whose backs do you do it? The working class, the peasantry? Now, that question did not arise in the 18th and 19th century. The Dickensian condition of the working class, forced land tax, enclosures, slavery. Now, these are out of the, you cannot do all that. So therefore, authoritarianism in building of capitalism, which was inbuilt, what Sven Beckert called war capitalism, hmm? that is no longer possible. So therefore, there is this push towards authoritarianism faced by late entrance into world capitalism. This is a different issue from that you have in Europe. And secondly, another remnant of colonialism, and this is my last point, I promise. <laughs> because the first is the product of colonialism. The fact that countries like India and China are late entrance is clearly due to colonialism. Hmm? Uh, the second threat to uh, democracy in these societies is a threat that emerges from another colonial remnant, and I emphasize it is a colonial remnant, which is, to, which is the political mobilization based on identity, be it religion, ethnicity, tribe, uh, whatever. 
Now, this did not exist. This is not remnants of the Indian past. This is a new phenomenon of politically mobilizing on the basis of identity, which is now ripping apart India. We today have political mobilization for the first time on a massive scale done on the basis of identity, on the basis of religious majoritarianism. There are, of course, similarities in the way in which this, uh, the threat of fascism emerges, as again we discussed yesterday. Uh, Jason Stanley has beautifully summarized this. The only thing that I want to highlight here is the commonality, the most important commonality which stares you in the face is that the fear is created among the bulk of the population, the majority. Those who are powerful are suddenly made to feel afraid of a small minority, that they are going to damage them. And this small minority is then who, who has, who's to be feared, is then by a slate of hand declared anti-national. So the majority suddenly becomes national, the minority is anti-national. And having figured out who the anti-nationals are, then the last step in, in, towards uh, uh, fascism is then you suppress the so-called anti-national based on identity, thought, religion, whatever you like. Then you have a free hand to destroy. How to combat this is not the discussion today, but I shall uh, we shall argue over time that the resistance to the threats to democracy also must not follow the same model that necessarily will work in Europe. The resistance in our societies needs to be based on our reality, our alternate forms of resistance, which may have qualities which can contribute to the world, just as the rest of the world has contributed to the way that Asian and other societies have learned from them. Thank you. It's bad luck having to follow Aditya. Uh, I've been humbled in the past 15 minutes. Uh, but what I want to talk about today is uh, some of the terminology that we're using and coming at it in part from a, a legal perspective uh, in terms of even the gathering that we're having now, talking about democracy in crisis. Well, if you voted for Nigel Farage, I don't think you think it's in great crisis. If you're a supporter of Le Pen, it's not in great crisis. But I'd even be more provocative to say that it's easy for us to polarize these kind of categories. But there are a lot of people in the middle. David Martin, who's a, a, a rather eminent immigration lawyer, points out that it's the people in the middle that are the ones that academics and scholars and advocates should be engaging with. So I think there's a, a, an importance of being very careful about terminology and being very careful about othering, to, bother a, or to borrow a term uh, from other disciplines. But when we think about this crisis, we think about democracy in crisis. What does that mean? And you look at the whole kind of mini industry now. Is democracy in crisis? And if you're academics, and I'm sure you're already into this, your labels matter. So is it a recession? Is it dying? Is it dead? Or as I think Richard House from NYU very recently made a really powerful case for saying, well, in a lot of cases, we're not talking about democracy in crisis. We're talking about disruptive democracy. And what Radula was speaking about yesterday in terms of the fact that the exercise of democracy has given the capacity to dismantle the very protections and mechanisms uh, that are there to keep a vibrant democratic society alive. 
So in a way, we need to think about these terms, but I think also we need to shift the lens and be self-critical in our own work. Uh, and I think that applies uh, to all of us across disciplines. And the other sort of point that I make in conjunction with that is the only way that we can effectively do that and if we actually care, and I think with this sort of subpopulation here, there's an element of either advocacy scholarship, which I think creates issues of its own, but advocacy through scholarship, of providing research and empirical work that regardless of whether experts no longer have their standing, and if you look at studies, it's not only that uh, expertise is skeptically viewed, by increasing numbers of the population, at least within US surveys, but within the academy itself, which is something of a damning statistic. But I think these are issues that we, as an invisible college of scholars that are concerned about these issues, need to think about. And I also think the limits of our Eurocentrism uh, applies even within the European context. So while we tend to sit here and point fingers at Poland and Hungary. Uh, one of the most striking things that came up in March of this year was the Justice Reform Act from Macron in France, where quite strikingly, I mean, I, I, I have to read the language here, in response to data technology that allowed some whiz kid to set up uh, a database that was called super leisure that meant that individuals could get on the website and they could track the identity of different judges with asylum cases. And it's not surprising that in this time period, the trigger is about transparency on decisions related to migration. And so what they were able to determine, which is what every refugee lawyer could tell you, some judges tend to actually give very measured and sympathetic judgments <laughs> And some have a horrific 100% rejection rates or close to it. And then there are those in between. But largely, you can predict walking in to a hearing what's going to happen. So they bring together the great and the good, as governments do. And they created a commission. And in March of this year, they enacted legislation for the Justice Reform Act that says the identity data of magistrates and members of the judiciary cannot be reused with the purpose or effect of evaluating analyzing, comparing, or predicting their actual or alleged professional practices. So that means not only predicting outcome, that's doctrinal analysis. That's what legal academics do around the globe. That is the, you know, the bread and butter of actually not only being a critical legal scholar, and, and, and not in that kind of um, uh, left-wing terminology, but exercising critical skills in terms of the independence of the judiciary. But this comes with potential of a five-year prison term. This is Macron's France. So what I'm saying is when we have these discussions, don't keep looking at the same culprits. Within each jurisdiction and each context, there are different triggers. And the issues that we should be concerned about are thinking about what's the tipping point? What are the metrics? And when we talk about a crisis, are we talking about a cultural crisis in the way in which pluralistic democracy functions? Or are we talking about something more severe in terms of a crisis of constitutional democracy, where you see the judiciary being corroded through very gradual but deliberate techniques and the demise of the rule of law? And when we as academics talk about 
democracy in crisis, what are you putting on the table? Are we coming forward? Think about Gramsci's definition of a crisis. It's that the old is dying and the new cannot yet be born. What are we talking about here? If we're saying democracy is in crisis, are we saying we need a new form of democracy? Are we saying that actually these constitutional mechanisms, the, the point that was, was it Diago yesterday that made about using courts, was that, if I, forgive me if I'm attributing the wrong, um, the wrong insightful comment to the wrong insightful person. Um, but wait a minute, are courts only there for when it's the likes of us? I mean, are we supposed to think that it's a crisis because courts are being used to resolve issues? Or is the crisis what you begin to see in our bonds poll, in Poland and our bonds Hungary, where you actually then begin to see a manipulation of the court, forced retirements? But it's a fact of stacking the court according to your political preferences in the United States any great assault in democracy? Or is that the way that the system was structured? In which case, if that is where the threat lies, then we should be thinking collectively and across disciplines about new models for how to protect those kinds of erosions. So I think it's important to think about crisis, but also to think about what we're putting on the table and what the implications are. Because remember, when you use crisis language, and, I, and I'm gonna make an analogy in a second to the refugee crisis, it comes with consequences. So on the one hand, we can say, well, crisis, you know, the language is completely banal now. It's become normalized. But on the other hand, if you think about when we're talking about a crisis of democracy and the variables in Europe would be different than the variables in India, but you've got a whole collapse of what one considers other crises, sovereign debt, uh, cultural identity, um, migration, all of these issues about governance are part and parcel of the discussion. And so it again, I think, is a real call for collaborative work across disciplines. Because we can't identify and isolate these issues within jurisdictional isolation, within our own cultures, but also within our own disciplines. Because those conversations uh, have, to, have to really occur across boundaries. But it brings me back to thinking about, well, is democracy in crisis? What do we mean? And in the refugee uh, crisis in 2015, and I'll confess I was one of the more cynical people, when all these discussions were going on, is it a refugee crisis, is it an asylum crisis, a protection crisis, a reception crisis, the crisification of asylum, I mean, academics can really spend a lot of ages on this stuff, okay? And I thought, this is ridiculous. You have thousands of people, the Mediterranean turning into a graveyard, you have people sleeping on sidewalks in inhumane conditions. Clearly, there's a crisis. Who cares about you know, where we're going to point the finger? But actually, now that we're back at pre-2014 numbers, 2015, there were over a million arrivals in Europe. And it was a crisis in all sorts of ways. And it was a lot of accountability, including, I think, the NGO sector, for perhaps not being more effective at anticipating the different kinds of challenges that would be made. But what's interesting is if you take it that it's a refugee crisis, it's a crisis because you have a million people arriving. That's, that creates a crisis. Well, then the crisis is over. We have 140,000 in 2018 last year, and the 2014 numbers were 240,000. So if you're going to have a really relativist kind of assessment, crisis is over. But 
if you identified this as a crisis, a human rights crisis of protection, of what was happening to individuals, not the broader context, that crisis is still continuing. And it's probably more severe now than it ever was because of the doctrinal transformation. So the European Court of Human Rights says, well, you can't push folks back. So governments are smart. They devise a pullback policy. They just hand the votes over to the Libyan Coast Guard. And we all know from recent history of what happens in those detention facilities down to the point of their being bombed with, with no escape from migrants. And that you have UN records consistently a very credible authority documenting what transpired. So even if one takes a cynical approach that those crossing the Mediterranean, a large percentage, and at different times, I think one can, can make a very credible argument, were economic migrants and subject to different parts of European law. You can argue whether you should have open borders or not, but legally you have a clear claim there. But if you look at what European policy has done, if those individuals weren't victims of persecution on their way over, European policy turned them into persecution. So this issue of accountability flips back on the European state. And yet if we think of crisis as over and we move on to the next crisis, we come up with a very different outcome. So the, I'll close up very quickly and it's on narrative and simply a cautionary note. Uh, democracy, and you're sitting in Croatia, the great success story of the 28th member state, but three years later, uh, we had the Brexit we had the Brexit vote. Uh, narratives, and Radula, I think you spoke very beautifully about the challenges of trying to squeeze facts as academics. Uh, even great scholars have done within narratives. And where I think it's really dangerous is in the human rights field, because narratives are powerful because they persuade people that they have to resemble the reality that they experience. And the more disconnected that narrative becomes from what's happening on the ground, the less effect it has. And we're in a period now where I think the human rights narrative, uh, in conjunction with the crisis of democracy, has lost a great deal of traction. And I think the challenge is to actually become self-critical in the process and be open to reshaping, abandoning the idea that we are speaking truth to power and reconciling that neither law, sociology, or history is going to speak truth to power. We may be able to come closer to providing effective evidence, we may be able to persuade, we may find some truths, but the idea that our narrative has some great messianic truth, I think is something that's gonna come right back at us. Um, so I'll turn the floor over to Mary. So you said it was bad luck to be speaking, you know, after Aditya. Well, you know, it's even worse luck to be speaking last on this panel. <laughs> what can I say, you know? Sorry, I'm just... Uh, yeah, there we go, sorry. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So, uh, how's that? So, um, I'm going to be looking at... Uh, I'm, I'm actually tracing the two texts... Uh, in a general way that I recommended for reading for this panel. Um, and I'm looking at um, a particular definition that's fairly influential of crisis and of cultural trauma. So I'm going to start with cultural trauma, as set out by Jeffrey Alexander, um, who comes from the field of cultural sociology, which examines how cultural structures and meanings penetrate the social via symbols, narratives, codes, and patterns of meaning. 
So in this spirit, Alexander's concept of cultural trauma denotes a cognitive process of construction of and identification with a trauma as mediated by a particular group or collective. Trauma, he argues, is not a naturally existing event. It's socially constructed, and it's a highly mediated work of imagination, which is broadcast by particular historically contingent agents, or carrier groups, as he calls them, within and ideally beyond the overall traumatized collective. Politically, the objective is to regain agency by winning official recognition of and perhaps also compensation for the grave injuries sustained by a given group and also to assign responsibility for the trauma. And ethically, the objective is to expand the circle of the we, that is, to create social solidarity in that other groups who have not experienced the trauma can nevertheless uh, recognize it, its impact on its victims, and, and therefore uh, empathize with the affected parties. So Alexander suggests that this approach to trauma is a performance very much like a speech act. It's a claim about social reality that's communicated to different audiences. And if successful, it may, depending on the robustness of institutions and the distribution of resources, result in cultural reclassification of history and group identity at various institutional levels, legal, aesthetic, governmental, and so on. Groups which may not have been recognized on the social, cultural, and political levels as traumatized may shift in status to being viewed officially as traumatized. And this is what he calls the trauma process. Likewise, perpetrator groups may be identified in the process and may even take responsibility for past crimes. For the victim collective, this identity shift in identity via an external process, because that's what the trauma process is, it's very, very external, it enters the group's self-understanding and its master narrative about itself. And so this initially quite possibly very controversial meaning-making process is if successful, ultimately a process of normalization. As Alexander puts it, the lessons of trauma become um, objectified in monuments, museums, and so on. And the powerfully affective discourse of trauma gradually recedes in impact over time. So in some cultural trauma denotes a process whereby, quote, new meaningful and causal relationships between previously unrelated events structures, perceptions, and actions are created, end of quote. So Alexander roots much of his thought in traumas that have taken place in the West. I think that's, in the context of this panel, absolutely worth um, uh, noting, in particular the Holocaust. He does consider other gen genocides and co colonialism, um, but through a theoretical apparatus that I think is fundamentally um, Western. Now, um, on to, that's just an observation uh, for discussion, perhaps, but uh, uh, another um, uh, point I would make is that he asserts that his approach is empirical and scientific. And um, as empirical and scientific, uh, he, uh, his approach uh, really strongly critiques other um, definitions of trauma. So he rejects what he calls the naturalistic or realist understanding of trauma, which essentially, uh, he says, is a view that determines that trauma is the result of a traumatic event, okay? So he terms this the lay, this is his term, the lay, 
So I delay view on trauma. So what does that mean? Well, I suppose it means it's unscientific and not empirical. Or as he calls it, a sort of a common sense perspective on what trauma is, it naively posits the traumatic event as the cause of trauma. And two dominant lay modes which read trauma in this way are what he defines as the enlightenment approach on the one hand and the psychoanalytical approach on the other. So the enlightenment approach in a nutshell sees trauma as a kind of rational response to abrupt change, whether it's at the individual or social level. The objects or events that trigger the trauma are clearly perceived by actors, responses are lucid, and the effects of these responses are problem-solving and progressive. And this view assumes that actors involved in or affected by a trauma are governed by reason and that therefore traumatic events typically lead to progress. So against this is the other lay theory of trauma, which we find in psychoanalysis. And here the main agent um, or subject for uh, observation is the individual, not the collective. Um, the enlightenment version is focused on the collective. The psychoanalytical approach furthermore suggests that the perception of trauma by the affected individual is much more complex than in the Enlightenment account because those affected can only access the trauma indirectly through the unconscious, but nevertheless it is still naively posited as some sort of an event. Reason and lucidity succumb to this sense of overwhelming, repression and haunting, and accurate memory goes underground. This is what Alexander says. In order that accurate memory comes back to see the light of day, a process of working through the repressed trauma has to take place. And for Alexander, the development of collective memory in the West, in particular in response to the Holocaust, has since the 1980s largely been viewed as the healing process of working through. And he notes that the humanities have been particularly influential in spreading this view of collective memory work during this particular period. He doesn't acknowledge, however, that by virtue of the mechanism of working through, the psychoanalytical approach ultimately reinforces the reason and lucidity of the Enlightenment approach. This goes back to Freud. Working through is a cornerstone of the psychoanalytical approach. It entails the effort to translate the unspeakable trauma into a language, narrative, or representation so that it can be made sense of and possibly put to rest for the individual affected. So, um, to sum this up, he views both of these lay versions of uh, trauma theory as succumbing to this naturalistic fallacy that misses his substantive scientific point, quoting, that events do not in and of themselves create collective trauma, and he goes on to emphasize this, events are not inherently traumatic, trauma is a soci socially mediated attribution. So, this account has the advantage of illuminating the politics of a process of storytelling and recognition. It gives us a blueprint for tracing what happens once a group begins to articulate their story and bring it to a wider public. However, as a nominally epistemological approach that tries to avoid positing trauma as an ontological reality, Alexander's concept implies that trauma only comes into existence when it is publicly labeled as such. This strictly constructivist angle sidelines individuals or groups of individuals, because groups are, after all, made up of individuals who suffer silently or unofficially for many years, who might even have a secret name for their suffering, but who, for whatever reason, dare not or cannot speak it. 
If the trauma is not expressed in a space of communication, it is difficult to see how it can validly exist within this constructivist frame. So he can only really account for it as a publicly enunciated discourse that audibly and visibly travels through groups, institutions, and other public spaces in the process he outlines. Cultural trauma, according to him, oh, one minute, crikey, I never even got to crisis. <laughs> Cultural trauma can't really theorize the communicative power of silence. Um, and from a humanities approach, that is the cornerstone of a difficult conceptualization of trauma. And it's not necessarily the ontological posit of an extra historical reality beyond language, time, and communication, which Alexander identifies in the so-called lay theories. Silence is rather an ambiguity that accompanies speech it's not necessarily an a priori, but a shadow side of what is said. Cultural trauma, I would say, can only work at a certain level of obviousness in the world of explicit signification. And I would also say to close, I won't go into crisis then. Rosemary covered it really well anyway. Um, <laughs> Alexander's fr framework is circular. He states that events are one thing and representations of events are another. So he actually posits this a priori of an event and then doesn't question its existence at all, focusing on what happens in the public domain as a, resu as a result of the acute discomfort entering into the core of the collectivity's sense of its own identity. It can only enter this core in a mediated way, however. So if we follow that trauma, it's not the result of a group experiencing pain, so trauma is, uh, claims to trauma are not automatic or natural responses to the actual nature of an event itself. Um, and that's because we can only conceive of it somehow mediated via the imagination. So here, I think he seems to do something quite typical of the lay theories he critiques on this significant point concerning ultimately how we think about history. He literally posits the inaccessibility of the traumatic event itself or the historical event. And Cathy Carruth, one of the lay thinkers that Alexander criticizes, um, she has come under a lot of uh, scrutiny for a similar issue in the field of psychoanalytical literary studies. Um, okay, so I think I'll probably leave it at that, um, and I'll just have to leave the crisis stuff out. But it can come up in the yeah, exactly. yeah. Thank, Thank you. you.